0: Thank mm-hmm. you.
1: Oh, sing, 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 sing. Who is this King of glory? The
0: Lord is
1: and he bore the cross.
2: Today's text is Matthew chapter 21. I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. There is a red Bible on the seat in uh, pew in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab that. Matthew chapter 21. This is the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and with a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. "'Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, "'the fowl of a beast of burden, "'the foal of the beast of burden. "'The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. "'They brought the donkey and the colt "'and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. "'Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, "'and others cut branches from the trees "'and spread them on the road. "'And the crowds that went before them "'and that followed him were shouting, "'Hosanna!' To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered the temple. And he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? That is a word of the Lord. So this passage before us is obviously, this is Palm Sunday, also known as the triumphal entry. It has some irony to it in that we celebrate his kingship. This is clearly a, a move where he is showing himself to be king, as we will see. It's also kind of a time of mourning as even the crowd who was chanting his name missed just what kind of king he really Was to be the kind of the irony also we see is in a donkey. It's a peaceful gesture that ends in a not so peaceful gesture, right? He walks into a temple, is flipping tables over after riding on a donkey of peace. We're going to look at that as well. The roadmap for today's sermon is this: we are going to see Jesus exercise his new proclaimed kingship in three ways. And renewing the community and the temple and inviting to those who were generally uninvited and unwelcome, he invited them to come into God's house. And then he proceeded to heal them and to love them and care for them. We will see him renewing the priority of worship in the temple, showing us what the focus of God's sacred ministry should be primarily about, and number three, we will end with Jesus purifying the worship in the temple, showing that we must focus our hearts and do the, the work of uncrowding the loves of our hearts and the need for a single-minded devotion to our God. So after that, let's go back into this text with verse one. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples Saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. Immediately you will find a donkey and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill some of the most, uh, you know, favorite phrase of Matthew. He's always showing us in the Gospel of Matthew how Jesus fulfills what we find in the Old Testament. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, that is, Zechariah, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So I learned something new this week, which, I mean, happens often, right? There's, there's evidence. Somebody dug up these old teachings from the rabbis. It was written down 2,000 years ago. And these rabbis said, During the Passover season, no one is to ride atop an animal. You are to walk into the temple. The idea being probably from Ecclesiastes, saying that you are to consider your steps as you approach the house of God. And so when we see Jesus doing this, that combined with nowhere else in the gospels that we see Jesus writing anything. He's always walking everywhere he goes. And also knowing something else about Jesus, he kind of liked to keep who he was a secret often. He would heal somebody and be like, shh, don't tell anyone. And it never worked out right because the people would be like he just hailed me and he's like ah oh. and then a huge crowd would show up and and often Jesus would then kind of run away that's what he would do it's, it's kind of peculiar how he would do that right and so here is unique in that it seems that he is making a very public statement he, he's the only one on a donkey and he's now about three or so feet high okay above this donkey above the sea of the crowd now this is passover this is jerusalem right there's scholars that estimate three to five times more people in the city during this holiday than normal so there's a huge crowd around and that's not even to count what matthew called the huge crowd already with jesus right if you go all the way back to matthew 19 there's been a crowd following him for some time and we can also know that he just finished healing, or healing, raising Lazarus from the dead. All right, so this, this crowd is, is excited. They're following him. He is on a donkey. He's above everyone. And he seems to really be drawing attention to himself to say, guys, this is important. Pay attention. And he was very aware of this prophecy in Zechariah, right? Your king is coming to you. humble. And mounted on a donkey on the foal of a beast of burden, of burden. Now this king that is coming to Jerusalem, we're going to see, he's a bit unexpected in terms of what kind of king he would be. It continues on in verse 6 through 8. It says, The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks. And he sat on them, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. That happened, I believe it was Jehu in the Old Testament, another leader king in Israel, right? And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, why palm branches? What were they for? There's varying maybe thoughts on this, but the best I found was, and I think it's really applicable here, just a few hundred years before this, Israel was beneath not the Romans, but the Syrians. We have Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a tyrannical, very evil man. And his, his uh, thumb of tyranny was hard pressed over the Jews. And beneath Judas Maccabeus and his family, they actually led a successful revolt against him. This is where the holiday of, of Hanukkah comes from. Um, They kicked out this evil ruler and and his people. They restored national independence. They cleansed and they purified the temple. And listen to what happened. This is quoted in 1 Maccabees chapter 13. It says this. On the 23rd day of the second month in the year 171, there was a great celebration in the city because this terrible threat to the security of Israel had come to an end. Simon and his men entered the fort singing hymns of praise and thanksgiving while carrying palm branches and playing harps and cymbals and lyres. Now, the crowd that followed Jesus are the ones that went before him. Some were kind of behind him. Some apparently were before him. And they were the ones introducing Jesus to the city in this very intentional manner. Now, they were probably thinking about this Hanukkah story, They remember the last time a leader stood to overthrow the tyranny that surrounded them. And they saw Jesus doing all these miracles, getting on a donkey and riding. They're like, guys, maybe history is going to repeat itself. Maybe this is it. Maybe the Romans are going to, their rule will come to an end. And so they get the palm branches, they go before, they say, history will repeat itself. Hallelujah. The prophecies are also coming true. We will be saved. And they were quoting from the Hillel Psalms. Psalm 118, Passover ritual kind of liturgy almost psalms that were quoted from all the Jews in this time saying, save us, Lord, we pray, Hosanna. It was a cry for salvation in hard-pressed times. They were, every, the story of Passover right, is about the deliverance of the Jews from the tyranny of Egypt and from slavery of Egypt. And here they were again in a slavery of Rome and they were yearning for redemption. Verse 9 says the crowds that went before him that followed him they were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I really want you to consider this scene. I mean this is A unique time when biblical history is literally being made. Prophecy is literally happening before people's eyes. And the Son of God himself is on the scene in the midst of it all. Now he came humbly and peacefully on the donkey. And there's some tension here because the palm branches in light of the history of Israel. In light of the Passover events seem to indicate that maybe... The crowd wasn't hoping for peace, right? Maybe they kind of wanted a fight. After all, this is Passover as we just spoke of, right? The passions were high. The intensity was there. Of all these things that could take place, right, they figured that he really is the king. Surely God is ready to restore Israel, but here he was on a donkey. A donkey is not something you want to ride into a fight with. They're slow, slow. They're not very smart. They're kind of wide and just awkward. I don't know if you've ridden a donkey before. But um, it's not like, an, you know, the most uh, uh, visually stimulating thing to have a, a warrior king on the scene. And this is when Jesus does something very unexpected, right? This peaceful king riding on a donkey. He gets off and does something not peaceful. And notice that even though Jesus has this huge crowd with him, his disciples are with him, Peter, James, and John, his inner three, who are usually like the first ones behind Jesus's, you know, heels as he's walking. The stories are told, this story is told in all the Gospels when he enters Jerusalem as this, as this self-proclaimed king, that he's really doing the next scene alone. Like, I, I, you know, I wonder if, if when, he, when he gets out of here, if the disciples are like, um... Wait, what's going on? Like, listen to this. He enters the temple. It's like an immediate thing, Matthew tells the story. He goes right into the temple, and he drives out all who sold and bought in the temple. He's overturning, flipping tables and the money changers in the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You can imagine Jesus not saying it like that, but saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer prayer and he's probably screaming and yelling this but you pointing make it a den of robbers now to get this scene in your mind the temple complex was huge we're talking about three miles of circumference from the complex massive massive place secondly the portion that he was in was called the court of the gentiles Anyone could walk in, almost anyone could walk into this place for worship. You didn't have to be Jewish, you could be also Gentile. This was a giant area, columns surrounding, called Solomon's Portico, where the early church actually had their first services when they were gathering in the book of Acts. Now, if you were Gentile or non Jewish, this is where you could find yourself, but you could go no further. As to proceed to the inner courts required you to to be actually be ethnically Jewish, but here is the most public area in the temple. But still, this is the temple; it's a sacred place of prayer and worship. But here, it was full of commerce. And now the commerce that was taking place with the buying and selling of animals and the, the, the money changers, it actually wasn't wrong in itself. I mean, the law called for an unblemished animal for the Passover sacrifice, and the danger of traveling from a long distance with your animal, and the danger of that animal getting injured or blemished in the process, that was high, so it would make sense to actually purchase your animal as close as you can to the temple to preserve your sacrifice. And also there was a Roman temple tax. The Jews had their own coinage. And so you had to translate the Jewish coinage to the Roman coinage, so you needed money changers. All of that was actually expected to be there. But why was Jesus so mad? It was because of the location of these things. The sellers and money changers used to do business outside the temple complex but this year they decided to do it probably just for convenience sake inside the temple complex. They set up shop as close as they can inside the court of the Gentiles. It's sacredness was robbed due to all the noise and the hustle and the, and the, the, the bustle of the, the commerce that was taking place. Now, what was the purpose for this temple, this court, especially the court of the Gentiles? Matthew here quotes from Isaiah 56, 7. Well, Jesus quoting from Isaiah 56, 7. Um, if you read that passage, it says that God's house shall be a house of prayer For all nations. And then Jesus shifts from Isaiah 56 to Jeremiah 7, saying, But you, and Jeremiah, when he said this, he was also standing in the temple, by the way, his own temple sermon. Jeremiah says, But you have made it a den of robbers. Now, the image of robbers is really referring to these political insurrectionists, but I think Jesus is saying, You are essentially robbing of what belongs to God. This new king was making his very public statement in a very important place, the court of the Gentiles, saying, This place needs to be opened up as a place of prayer and sacredness for everyone. One of the great mysteries of the gospel that the early church greatly struggled with, as we see throughout the book of Acts, the early chapters especially was this new idea, and this was radical for Rome, we've talked about it before, of the racial inclusion of both Jew and Gentile together, worshiping as one body beneath their Lord and Savior Jesus. And however, Jesus is pointing out something important that had always been true. There was room for everyone in the temple. There had always been room for the Gentiles there to walk and to pray there. And the book of Isaiah is absolutely filled with good news that one day foreigners from all over the world would one day be a part of his people. Let's read the full quote from Isaiah 56 where Jesus snagged his quotes. It says this, Isaiah 56, six through seven, it says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant these I will bring to my mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples but how could those in the court of the gentiles pray with all this noise and all the buying and all the selling and exchanging of money. It's clouding the purposes of the temple and the real ministry that should be taking place on those walls and giving less room for the Gentiles to have what is necessary for their worship, which is a place intended for prayer and prayer only. And Jesus was not happy about this. riding to the temple as king and now flipping tables as a prophet. If you read closely, he appeared to be completely alone. I kind of imagine the funny scene where like everybody's, Hosanna, Hosanna. And he kind of like just gets focused, gets off the donkey, walks right into the temple, starts just flipping tables and going a little, you know, a little uh, crazy. And everybody else is kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, what? What's what's going on here? Because nobody joined him. He's like doing this by himself. The, what, were the, what was the crowd? They were just chanting his name. And he's now by himself doing this. His disciples are probably like, uh, should we join him? Like, what? He didn't tell us about this part here. I, was, I don't know what's going on. But like, let's just maybe watch and see what happens. I don't know what's happening, right? And then the crowd that's with him by association, as we see, there's some skeptical eyes, right, kind of being cast. And people are probably like, who did you just bring here? Like, what in the world is going on, right? They were chanting and looking for a king to lead them against the Romans. And suddenly, Jesus seems to be against his own people here in the temple itself. And he's doing so with the authority as if the temple belongs to him. Because it does. Because he's God in the flesh. And he is the king. So what do we gather from this story? We've established so far Jesus is a new kind of king. Humble and mounted on the donkey. But secondly, is concerned about some reform and cleaning house of worship in his temple. An unexpected move. But what happens next really brings clarity to this story. Matthew 21, 14 says this. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did in the children, children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. When you think of that in your mind, think of little kid voices just kind of frantically yelling and laughing and singing that they were in. And they said to him, Jesus, do you hear what these kids are saying, right? Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths and infants and nursing, nursing babies you have prepared praise? You know, he just indirectly said that they're praising him, right? You can imagine the shock that would have came to the, uh, the, the, the temple leaders who heard that, like Praising you? Who are you exactly? What authority do you do these things? That's another question he was asked often. So let's get into our our kind of back end of our sermon here. Jesus finds himself um, renewing community in the temple as one of his first jobs, if you will, of uh, establishing his public role of king. Matthew intentionally tells the story in order here and we may see and open the eye and with open eyes, the kind of ministry that should be taking place in the temple, regardless of race, physical limitations, or even age. This is an area where Christianity, in terms of its biblical foundations, is always and always has been, or at least always should have been, against the grain of society. Even though, sadly enough, Christians, we've, we've often known in our church history, we failed in this regard. Now Jesus here was in the courts of Gentiles. The original audience would have been very aware of this. The Gentiles, they we said, they're excluded from temple worship. This court was the only place they were welcome and their space was crowded out. But now we have the blind and the lame and the children. Jesus is kind of letting them in. And that was also pretty taboo. They were unclean, the blind and the lame. And this is a sacred place. What are they doing here? And children were of no importance in this society, right? They were the ones that you get and you remove them from the adults. It was like there's another scene when Jesus is with children. They're like, get those kids away from him. Get those. That was the way that children were viewed in that day. But Jesus was regularly found touching the lepers, healing the outcasts and loving them, and even inviting children to come to him when his disciples tried to push them away. Now Christianity remains the only tangible place, or should be the most tangible place, to find black with white, rich with poor, and child with elderly together worshiping our king. Because grace is available in these walls right? We know, and I can't help but mention this, we know that right now in our nation there is uh, high tensions with race that's been going on for a multitude of years and generations in our country. But what so often is the case when this conversation once again arises, grace usually is missing. Some would like to deny in our racial past in America that um, the, 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 the former years of racism, former years, has any real effects today? And then you try to turn a blind eye to it. But someone also like to, uh, whenever a, a, a smidgen of racism is found, to completely cancel and exile and just remove com- with no grace whatsoever available. And both sides are making the air. Can we as a church be the place where well, we are not afraid to talk about guilt to recognize guilt and to extend grace? That we recognize that when wrongdoing is found, that there's an innocent one who died on our behalf that we can point to and say, we can find reconciliation together. We can work through the messiness of this broken world and we can do it in the same roof as one people because of Jesus. Can we find in our pews on Sunday, as we said, black with white, rich with poor, child with elderly, all together, worshiping our king and can the church be also a place where we don't hush children and send them away from the adults but learn how to incorporate them into our community as Jesus was doing in the temple complex these children this passage they were probably loud crying out with some silliness and laughter and and singing praises to Jesus and people just like oh children they're so loud they're so loud and obnoxious can someone get those kids out of here Jesus, don't you hear this? They're yelling at you. Can you do something? And what did he say? If they didn't do it, the rocks would do it. Jesus invited the children to come to him. Our society continually complains and rejects children and complains about them. You should hang out with me for a day when I would have all six of my kids and I'm walking around and the comments that are made to me it always blows my mind. I'm always thinking like, do you hear the words coming out of your mouth right now? Like Alex, my wife, she just told me last week, somebody said, if I had six children, I would jump out of my own window. It's like, and how am I supposed to take that? Like, what do I do with that? It's like, okay, you know, Uh, Wherever I go, when complaints start rising, I'm always like, yeah, but you know, I love that they're a blessing. You know that? Like, I I love this. They're they're wonderful. Of course, they're hard and difficult and they challenge you, but I think that's kind of the point of why God arranged life to be the way that it is. It grows us, right? Um, Maybe the church can be a great, our societal grain here and, and encourage babies. Like, babies are great. Have babies, Right? Let's love the children in this church. Let's have a seat next to us in our pew for them and available to them as we gather for worship. Jesus is giving a glimpse of renewal here for the community of God's people, the blind, those who don't have any kind of hope to walk in and to be healed and find brothers and sisters, for the lame to walk in and find brothers and sisters. This is the kind of people that this king wants to find in God's house. And he's showing that this us this in this story. Number two, renewal of priority of worship. This kind of piggies back on our last point. will be a little more brief. The things happening in the temple were not wrong, as we stated, they were just emphasized in the wrong place, crowding out the real ministry to people that needed to be taking place. The church can become a lot of, about a lot of things and can experience its own version of crowding out the ministry uh, that really truly matters and the vision that Jesus has laid out for his church. As we continue into this new season at Emmanuel, that is one of my continual guiding questions and prayers. What is the real ministry that truly matters? COVID in a way way has given all churches around kind of like a, a chance at a blank slate. Right To say everything stopped for a while We're kind of itching slowly back into regular patterns of ministry And it's a great time to question this What can we be about? Right? What are the things that truly matter? The question I think can be simplified in this story as well The ancient temple was nothing without the people Or without God's presence It only functioned in its you know, intention when people were there and only when God's presence was there. This building, likewise, only, that we're sitting in today, it only has meaning and function when you are here. When people are here. And we know this is true because we can take a step further and say this building actually isn't needed for God's church to function because we are the building and we know this we are the body of Christ and therefore if we have anything if we if that's our starting point then anything we have should be about people it should be geared towards people and not just us But also those on the outside. Jesus was bringing in people from the outside who were not there. Who were not so much welcome in the old temple complex. And that's the idea. Is that we bring people from the outside to join us into the place that we have. So if we are to allow that reality to define that ministry that people centered ministry which is the work of God aimed towards people what should the majority of our church's energy be spent towards and be exerted towards? It is people. The church is to be about Jesus and people before anything else. And anything we have is to serve others. The moment it becomes about us or me or you only, we don't think about anything else but what we have and just you and I here in this room and that's where we get stuck That's when the church begins existing for the sake of itself. And Jesus shows us that his community is not just about us, but about those out there that need to hear the good news, that need the healing touch and power of Jesus. And the final thing that we can draw from this passage is purifying worship. The final question that comes is, have you allowed things to crowd out your own worship of Jesus? Have you invited your own money changers in your own booths of buying and selling and all the noise that comes along with it to crowd out your own court of worship? Your heart is the court of the temple. Your body is his temple. And Jesus and his kingship There's only supposed to be one throne in your heart. Your heart is designed to have one throne and only one throne. And we know this is true because when we engage in false worship of whether it's money or whether it's a person or the love of attention or or comfort or you name it, those things simply do not deliver. Because once we have, the question would be, well, that was great. That's not enough, though. I need more. I need more. And there seems to be an infinite depth of need in our heart that only the infinite God can satisfy. We must look to your own longings as evidence that God is real and so real because what else could possibly bring satisfaction to your eternal longings other than the eternal God? Have you, are you still striving for things that simply cannot deliver in your own heart. And you're crowded out, you're trying to find a little spot for Jesus to somewhere be in the mix of all of those things. Psalm 86 verse 11 is, is uh, one of my favorite verses. I, I say it regularly to myself in prayer when, when David says, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart because that is our problem. Our heart is often not united. It is torn It has competing things vying for our love over here and over here and over here. And Jesus says, enough, I am enough. When will I be enough? When will you flip those tables out and invite me in to be king and Lord only of your life? So in all the things we've mentioned so far, the takeaway thing is this. Jesus is doing all of this as the authority of a king. And that is not a popular statement in today's day and age. The renewal of community, of the priority of people in our worship, and the need for a purifying of our hearts is shown to us with kingly authority. It is a call for you to set aside whatever it takes to give this world a glimpse of these wonderful and beautiful things which are ultimately a glimpse of heaven itself. In Revelation that we see um, a multitude of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and even apparently in their own tongues, they're still singing and they're worshiping together as a people to God. These are glimpses of heaven when the church can tap into these things. We can show the world that there's hope for a united humanity, but there's only a hope and a united humanity in Christ. Only in Jesus and only with his forgiveness and his grace that he extends to us. And him as king, once you fall into his new body, he says, great, now I'm your king. I do get to tell you what to do now. Right? That's what kings do after all. He's inviting us to be beneath his authority as his bond servants, which the New Testament says is our ultimate freedom. Because that's where we were created to be anyway and through his death with the removal of sin, this is all possible for us today. We are asked and invited to share in Jesus, to share in his life and his ministry. When the spirit indwells us, it is a invitation from God to say, look, I am just unleashing myself on you. I am filling you with myself, that you may go out and make disciples of all nations. You may love me with a united heart." And may love your neighbors, telling and showing them the good news of my Son. Will we do this today? If the Holy Spirit has convicted you in any way, I want to take a few minutes to pray as we call our our worship team back up. Also, after um, the final song, we'll have some people in the front available for prayer. If the Spirit has worked on you in any way, if He has stirred your heart in any way, please don't leave without responding to it. If you've sat and there's been a voice in your head that's just kind of saying something that you know you need to listen to, but you're like, uh, uh no, I don't want to cut it off, I'll cut it off, think about football, think about this. What a... Stop and listen to the Spirit talk to you and to do something about it. If you're here this morning and you don't, you're not quite identifying as a Christian and this Jesus guy is very interesting to you. You're saying, well, this, I, I, maybe I want to know more about Jesus please grab somebody and we would love to share with you more about Jesus and to not just tell you but show him who he is through the love that this church has to offer to extend to you let us pray Jesus thank you for this story your humility is shown Lord you could have really just got on the war horse and, and made some this, this big kind of political movement to gather strength and power for yourself. But Lord, this wasn't the time to do that. You rode in humbly and you knew that your people first, you, 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 you opened up this time that is now 2,000 years of time of grace that we may know our king and respond and be saved. This story reminds us, Lord, that you are a a king you are a fierce king you are a powerful king but you are a gracious king as you embraced the blind embraced the lame as you cared for the Gentiles to clear out their area of the temple to give them a place of worship as well as for God's people the Jews Lord you've shown your heart that you want to unite and reconcile all things in yourself as Paul said Lord, I pray for Emmanuel, that we could be a glimpse to Wilmington of this, that we could be a glimpse of this reconciling work that you have laid out for us. As as Paul said, uh, we are to be reconciled to God in order that we may be ambassadors of our king to those around us, Lord. May we be that for this city, Lord. And Lord, for those who are convicted this morning, who feel challenged, who know that they need to just repent and turn from things in their life and to embrace you, even if it's the deepest and darkest sin that's never been exposed, Lord, I pray that we can be a church of grace available for those people to come and to confess. And with a hug and with love, we can tell them Jesus has paid for that and it's done and he loves you and you are still his child. Thank you, Jesus, for this week of holy, this, this holy week as we remember the final week of your life. We look forward to all that's to come. May you speak to us powerfully through your spirit this week. May you give us opportunities to minister to those around us, opportunities with neighbors. And may this um, a Good Friday service be meaningful for us as we reflect in your death, but even more so, may this place be packed out on Easter, Lord, as we just celebrate your resurrection. We love you, Jesus.